Philippians chapter 1. Open your Bibles, please, and we'll look at verses 19 through 26. And I'll remind you a couple of weeks ago in our opening message of Philippians, we likened it to driving through the famed Avenue of the Giants in Northern California, where the beautiful and magnificent redwood trees line the highway for some 35 miles, and it's a sight to behold. And we began to encounter the giants of Scripture, six verses into Philippians, where we ran across this, where Paul said, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it in all the people he really likes. Will complete it until when? The day of Jesus Christ. God is always going to be working on us. And for that, we should be thankful and grateful. And this verse, while well known among the giants of Philippians that we're going to encounter, I was thinking about how even along that 35-mile drive uh, through the Redwoods and this avenue of the giants, there is among them a giant of giants. And it's called, obviously... The giant tree. It's 363 feet tall. It has a 53-foot circumference. Its branches spread 62 feet out from the trunk. And truly, it is a giant among giants. Well, in the midst of all the giants of Scripture in Philippians, we're going to encounter the giant of giants in our verses this morning. It is the most often quoted and the most familiar passage from the book of Philippians, And it is verse 21 where Paul says, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Now, the interesting thing about this giant of Scripture is that it's not the disclosure of a spiritual gift. It's not a doctrinal statement. It's not a theological revelation. It's actually a personal decision. Paul said, For to me. Here's how I view this circumstance in which I am now living. To live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, a little history will help us along our way this morning. Looking back to what got Paul in this mess in the first place, in Acts 25, 9 through 12, we're told about Festus, who wanted to do the Jews a favor, answered Paul and said, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and there be judged before me concerning these things? So Paul said, I stand before Caesar's judgment seat where I ought to be judged. To the Jews I've done no wrong, as you know very well, or very well know. For if I am an offender, or have committed anything deserving of death, I do not object to dying. But if there is nothing in these things of which these men accuse me, no one can deliver me to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with the council, answered, You have appealed to Caesar. To Caesar you shall go. Now, Paul was about to stand trial before the most powerful man in the world who would decide his fate in this life. What was his crime that brought the four-year imprisonment and now the trial before Caesar Nero? He was accused of bringing a Gentile into the court of the Jews, which was a false accusation. And in Jerusalem, Paul stood before the mob who sought to kill him for that great offense, and he told them, of his encounter with Jesus on the Damascus Road. He told them that God had called him through his encounter with Ananias, and when the scales fell off his eyes, and he had uh, petitioned the Lord when he met him on that road, what would you have me to do? And Ananias played a part in that revelation. He recounted to them how he guarded the clothes of those who were 
killing Stephen and even consented to his death. And then he said this. In Acts 22, 21, he said, Depart from me, he speaking, he, Jesus speaking to Paul. Depart from me, for I will send you far from here to the who? To the Gentiles. And the Jewish mob listened to him until this word, and then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he is not what? Fit to live. For wanting to tell the Gentiles about the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, here we have Paul, almost four years later, writing to the beloved Philippian church as he awaits his trial before Nero, and he is telling them that whatever the verdict and sentence, in his mind, it's a win-win situation. For to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, what we need to remember initially this morning is that's true for every believer. If you live, you live for Christ. If you die, you gain heaven. And in His presence there is fullness of joy, and at His right hand pleasures forevermore, according to Psalm 1611. But the reality is, while this is true for every born-again believer, not everyone comes to the same place as Paul and says, For to me, to me life is all about Christ. To me death is all about gain. And in our opening message in Philippians, we address the subject of becoming overcomers, and how with all of life's trials and tribulations, that we can become someone who can write a love letter while bound in chains with a past that has been painful and difficult. Is Jesus still the one who makes men free? And when he sets us free, we are free indeed. Now, our topic today is going to be the same, only different. Our title and topic for this stop on our trip through the spiritual avenue of the giants is simply the choice is yours the choice is yours how do we get to that place where we say for to me my perspective on life my perspective on death is to live is for christ and to die is gain and sometimes i think we lose sight of the fact that the bountiful christian life isn't just for a select few like paul or peter or priscilla it's for all of us But we have to come to that place. We have to come to that mindset. And there may be fewer people who take the for to me attitude and approach, but it's not limited to people pre-selected by God. In other words, it's not like that stuff you receive in the mail. You have been pre-approved to apply. You know what that means? You are part of a select group called the rest of the planet. You're just like everybody. Listen, we are actually pre-approved to practice being more than conquerors. We are pre-approved to practice living as overcomers. And we can have that kind of outlook and attitudes toward both life and death. And that's what Paul is going to talk about here this morning. So, are you ready to learn about the choice that we have to make to have this kind of attitude that Paul has and how we can get there this morning? Thank you for the five of you. All of us, let's stand together and read our verses, Philippians 1, 19 through 26, and we'll find that the choice is ours, and we can adapt this attitude and adopt this attitude of Paul's. Verse 19, down to 26. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ, the Spirit of Jesus Christ, sorry, according to my earnest expectation and hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, 
but with all boldness as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I cannot tell. For I am hard pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you, for you all for your progress and joy of faith, that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. And Lord, we're thankful for this topic this morning in this section of verses. And I pray, Lord, that you would speak to us, that you would embolden us, that you would empower us. And we pray as Paul petitioned the Philippians to pray for him that you would pour out your spirit upon us, that we may speak in this age of growing darkness all around us. So, Lord, we look to you now. I pray, God, that you would equip the saints for the work of ministry via our time together in your matchless and infallible word this morning. We ask these things in Jesus' name and all in agreement said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Now, the first component of choosing the live as Christ, die is gain outlook and mentality is found in verses 19 to 21. But the thing we need to point out before we get going this morning is that the spiritual aspect of this is already done. That's why Paul would write in Ephesians 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with what? Every spiritual blessing. We already have them. We've already been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And having been given every spiritual blessing, we need to act on what we have received. And this is what Paul is going to reveal to us here this morning and give us insight in, that we have to actualize or activate what we have received as saints. And he knows that his trial will turn out, he says, for his deliverance through their prayers and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Now, I find it interesting that there are many in the church today who either deny the gifts of the Spirit or they reject the idea that there is a baptism of the Spirit apart from the indwelling of the Spirit. Listen, when you're born again, the Holy Spirit moves in and you are filled with the Spirit of God. Some say that's all you're going to get. Well, not according to the Scriptures. Because the fact is, Paul says and prays or asks that they pray that he would receive this supply of the Holy Spirit in order to do what God has called him to do. Now, the interesting part about that is the word supply means contribution. So Paul is saying, I believe that when I stand before Caesar Nero, I need the Holy Spirit to contribute to my words. So I say to Nero, the most powerful and wicked man in the world. Some even said that Nero is going to be the Antichrist. I don't agree with that. He's uh, long dead. That's my only argument for that, (laughs) is that he's dead. Amen? And the reality is he's saying, you know what? I need something more when I stand before Nero because I don't want to blow it. I want to speak to him with power and authority just like I have in other situations. And what he earnestly expected and hoped for was that his boldness before Caesar would be the same as it was in front of other people and it wouldn't be impacted by the potential verdict. 
and that he would say what was needed to be said to Nero. I couldn't help but think of Polycarp, the Bishop of Smyrna, the disciple of John the Beloved. We've talked about what his uh, executors were doing and saying to him when he was about to be burned at the stake. They pleaded with him to recant, and Polycarp's response was, 86 years I have served my Lord, and he has never failed me. I will not deny him now. But leading up to that statement, we also have the historical record of what took place when he was arrested. He was escorted to the local proconsul or the state governor, uh, Stadius Quadratus, who interrogated him in front of a crowd of curious onlookers. Polycarp seemed unfazed by this interrogation. He carried on a witty dialogue with Quadratus until Quadratus lost his temper and threatened Polycarp. He told him, you can be thrown to the wild beast or I could burn you at the stake. And on and on he went with his threats against Polycarp. And Polycarp told Quadratus that while the proconsul's fire lasts but a little while, the fires of judgment reserved for the ungodly cannot be quenched. Boy, how's that for some boldness? And then Polycarp said this, why do you delay? Go for it. Do what it is you want to do. At that point in time, the soldiers grabbed him in order to nail him to a stake. But Polycarp stopped them and said, leave me alone. For he who grants me to endure the fire will enable me also to remain on the pyre or the stake unmoved without the security you desire from nails. He prayed aloud. The fire was lit. His flesh was consumed. The chronicler of his martyrdom said it wasn't like burning flesh, but it rather was like bread baking or gold or silver refined in the furnace. The historian who recorded this account concluded by saying, Polycarp's death was remembered by everyone, and he was even spoken of by the heathen. In other words, how this man died and how he saw it as gain made its way into the heathen communities and had an impact on them. And Polycarp had chosen the same outlook as Paul towards life and death. He was not intimidated by Quadratus, and he was unfazed by the interrogation, even though he, like Paul would later be, stood in front of a man who could pronounce the death sentence on him. And yet he was warning, Quadratus, what awaits you apart from God is far worse than me being burned at the stake. And Paul's concern was that he magnify Christ, whether through life or death. For to him, to live was Christ, and to die was gain. Now listen, here's our first point this morning. And we're in a tough and weird season of history here, uh, not just in the world, but I think especially in the United States. And we need to remember this this morning. Listen, when magnifying Christ is our goal, life and death become opportunities, not enemies. When magnifying Christ is our goal, life and death become opportunities, not enemies. And the timing of our journey down the avenue of spiritual giants, I believe, is of divine providence. And I couldn't help but think yesterday in this, uh, of the story of Esther and how she lived and the time in which she lived. And Esther 4, 13 to 16 tells us about Mordecai told them to answer Esther, do not think in your heart that you'll escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. She had become queen. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom 
for such a time as this. There's that famous phrase. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast for me, neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will fast likewise, and I will go to the king, which is what? Against the law. And if I perish, I perish. There was a government official named Haman who sought to kill all the chosen people of God. The Jews, obviously, at that time. Why? Because Esther's cousin, Mordecai, who had raised her, refused to bow to Haman because Mordecai was a Jew and Jews bowed to no one but God. Amen? So Haman wanted to teach all God's chosen people a lesson and kill them. And Hadassah, Esther as we know her, a Jew had been made queen by King Xerxes. And Mordecai told Esther that she must not be silent because God is going to deliver his people, either through her or through someone else. And Esther made the decision that she would violate Persian law and go to the king without invitation and seek to reverse the evil plot. You know what? It worked. And the king listened, and he did. And the 50 cubit high gallows that Haman had constructed for Mordecai, Haman actually wound up hanging on them when Xerxes found out what he had done. And the point is this. We live in a time where the enemy is plotting against us. And the principalities and powers that we talked about last week are seeking to destroy everything that is good and godly. Evil has become good. Good has been called evil. Now, I'm like the rest of you. I've had to remind myself multiple times recently that this is to be expected. But I've also come to realize it's one thing to read it. It's quite another to live in it. And these are perilous times indeed. And it's hard to watch and see what is going on in our country and the radical changes that have been made in a rather short span of time as things have escalated towards the time of the end rather quickly. And this is exactly what the book of Revelation opens with in chapter 1, verse 1, that once these things begin to happen, they'll happen in quick succession. And that's exactly how they're happening now. Listen, Jesus is coming for his church soon. And where are things headed in our country and world? Well, according to Revelation, the world is going to seek to destroy all the saints, just like Haman and Hitler did with all the Jews. But we do know that we have not been appointed to wrath, but to obtain salvation through Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Amen. Now, Revelation 12, 10, and 11 reminds us, as John says, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ has come. For the accuser of our brethren, who accused him before our God day and night, has been cast down. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And listen to this. And they did not love their lives to the death. It is possible that the church in America is going to experience what's been happening in other countries since the first century. It's not just possible, it's prophetic. And at such a time as this, the choice is yours and mine to magnify the Lord or not, whether in how we live or how we die or even how we respond to being ostracized because that's happening all around us. 
And when magnifying the Lord is our goal, life and death are equalized as opportunities to do just that. And we're not going to go through the Great Tribulation. But we are seeing the Great Preparation. The mental and emotional preparation for a time where anyone who goes against the state is going to be found worthy of punishment by death. That's what's going to happen during the Tribulation. Now, Jesus told us in Matthew 10, 22, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But he who does what? Endures till the end will be saved. Now, Paul knew that all he had been through would turn out for his deliverance. Now, that word deliverance is translated as salvation elsewhere. So that meant that since magnifying Christ was his goal, he chose to see life and death as equal opportunities to do just that, to magnify Christ. And that's how we should approach life as well. As we become persecuted, as people have their jobs threatened, all the things we've been going through, they are all opportunities for us to bring glory to God and to magnify His great name. Amen? Amen. Now look at 22 to 24 once again. Paul says, But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor, yet what I shall choose I cannot tell. For I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. Now, we need to do some housekeeping here for a minute before we move on. Paul's not saying that he had the final word on whether he lives or dies. Now, that's in the hands of the Lord. Amen? Amen. The word choose can, and in this context, should probably, at least for us uh, English readers, be translated as prefer. And Paul was referring to the outcome of the trial that awaited him. And he was saying, you know, I, I really don't know which outcome I prefer, guilty or not guilty. Because not guilty means I keep on living for Christ, but be found, to be found guilty and sentenced to death means I go to be with the Lord. And I don't know which one of those I actually prefer. He says he was perplexed as to which he would prefer because to depart this earth and be with the Lord is far better. Now, he also reminds us that this far better thing uh, awaits us as well in 1 Corinthians 15. In 53 to 58, Paul says, When this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, the strength of sin is the law, but thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast. This is a word to us today. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Now, this is why Paul was perplexed between the two potential outcomes of his trial. Death had been swallowed up through Christ's victory on the cross, and therefore, it had lost its sting. And verse 24 brings some balance into our thinking on the issue uh, that death takes the believer to a far better place, which is true, right? I mean, we always say that at a Christian's funeral. They're in a better place, which has to be the biggest understatement in the course of human history because words can't even describe where it is we are going. Amen? But the reality is, in most cases, if not all, for the people left behind by the one who departed, it'd be far better if the person stayed here. Yeah. 
And I don't think anybody, I think God, it's just stunning how we see with people who have been battling an illness or whatever, that the family goes from praying, Lord, heal them, Lord, heal them, Lord, heal them, Lord, heal them, to Lord, take them, Lord, take them, Lord, take them. And I believe that's his mercy and grace. And and he uh, hears those cries without uh, question. But death is ugly. Death is painful. And this is what Paul is saying. You know, it'd be better. I know you'd prefer that I stay church at Philippi. And I know it'd be better for you if I did as well. But listen, what Paul is saying that I know that there's going to be fruit from my labors. I know that, you know, it will be beneficial to you if I'm found not guilty. And the next point that we can conclude from this that we have to decide to act on because the choice is ours is simply this. Listen, we've said this before. It needs to be said frequently. So we'll say it again this morning. Listen, the primary reason we are still here is so we can minister to others. That's why we're still here. Otherwise, why would God leave us in this terrible place? It's getting worse by the day, isn't it? And Christians are dying all over the world, and it's increasing uh, more so uh, as the centuries pass. The 20th century was the deadliest century of church history by far. More Christians were martyred in the 20th century than the previous 19 centuries combined. This is what's happening in our world today. So for God to leave us here, there has to be a reason. What is it? Ministering to other people. Ministering the gospel to the lost. Ministering blessings to those who are His. And I hope the point is being driven home for us all that we live in a time of fear and fear-mongering. And the primary object of the fear the world is experiencing today is the fear of death. And of course, people don't want to get the bug and get sick and all that. But I thought it interesting We went to a movie on Thanksgiving. We saw that um, uh, spiritually in-depth and profound movie, Ghostbusters. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, it was clean. We didn't get slime, thankfully. So that was a pun there. I'm sure most of you caught that. But it was interesting. My son called and said, hey, you want to go to a movie after Thanksgiving dinner? And he said, I'll get the tickets. I'll buy them online this morning. My first thought was, Thanksgiving Day, going to the movies? There's like a bazillion other people that have that same idea. There's no way we're getting in. And then he texted me back and said, hey, I got the tickets. We're going to 545. Well, we got to the theater, and there wasn't one person in the concession line. Not one person. There was nobody in the whole foyer of the theater except for us and the people that worked there initially. And we got there five minutes before the two hours of trailer start. (laughs) And we got to our seats. We're the only one in the theater. And then halfway through all the trailers, there were two large families that had the same idea that we did, uh, came into the theater. And why was the theater empty on Thanksgiving Day uh, for a movie that in the eyes of the world would be extremely popular? Fear. Fear of death. That's why nobody was there. Now I want you to think about this. This is Pastor Bryce and I talked about this for a minute between services. I want you to think about this. The pro-jab and the anti-jab groups are both driven by fear. And both have legitimate reasons for their fears. The bug is killing people. And the jab is killing people. So what's everybody afraid of in both groups? They're afraid of death. And listen, the point for our purposes today is not who's right and who's wrong between these groups, but simply to note that the world is dominated and intimidated right now by fear. 
But we haven't been given that spirit. And in Matthew 10, 27 to 31, Jesus said, Whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. And what you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops. And do not fear. Did you catch that? Do not fear. When you see that kind of language, that's a directive. That's a command, not a suggestion or an idea or concept. Jesus said, do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. But rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body. Where? In hell. And then he illustrates his point like this. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. But... The very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore. There's a directive again. You are of more value than many sparrows. Now, listen this morning. Again, I want to draw a comparison, and it's only a comparison that I'm drawing. Today, we are facing a virus that has a 1.62% fatality rate. In other words, 98.48% of people survive uh, this virus. Now last year the percentage was a little higher but it was still under 2%. It was 1.92%. Paul was facing something that had the odds of 50. 50. There was a not a 1.62% chance he was going to die. There's a 50% chance that he was going to die. And what's he saying? While facing greater odds of death than we're facing today, he's saying, you know what? I don't know what the outcome is going to be of this capital crime trial that I'm going to face, but this much I know for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, how did he arrive at this kind of mentality? Well, 2 Corinthians 12, 1-4 says, It's doubtless not profitable for me to boast. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know, or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows. Such a one was caught up to the third heaven. And by the way, the third heaven is simply the domain of the, uh, the Father, Son, and Spirit, and the four beasts, and all the other uh, angelic creatures. Uh, the domain of the birds is the first heaven. The domain of the stars is the second heaven. And where God is, is the third heaven, the highest of heavens. Paul says, I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows how he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which it is not lawful for a man to utter. Paul had seen where he's going. And he said, it's so amazing to use human words to describe it would be unlawful. He had met the resurrected Lord and his conclusion was to be with Christ is far better than his current existence. And one of the main reasons I believe that the rapture is near, besides the mountain of evidence that Jesus told us to look for, is because the world has lost its respect for the church. The world looks at the church as some kind of fringe right-wing conspiracy theorist group, and that's how they view us today. And since the primary reason we're still here is to minister to others and our absence of fear because we don't have that spirit is viewed as stupidity or anti-science, it seems logical that God's going to shift gears and he's going to send his two witnesses and he's going to mark out 144,000 male virgin Jews to preach the gospel. And then on top of that, he's going to send an angel flying in the midheaven to preach the everlasting gospel to the whole of the world. And listen, at that point in time, the whole world will have heard the gospel. 
that's when that prophecy is fulfilled. The whole world is going to hear the gospel by an angel preaching during the tribulation. And the truth is, I believe, we are at a point in world history, we have reached a point of no return. As we said, evil is called good. Good is called evil. God is getting ready to shift gears. God is getting ready to take us home because the church is largely being trampled underfoot by men and in the eyes of the world has become good for nothing. But listen, until then, as we await what is far better, it's needful that we remain here to minister. And if we're still here, we're here for a reason. We're here not to simply exist. We're here. I had a friend, um, you know, the senior picture caption that a lot of people like to put, you know, goofy things. I had a friend that uh, his caption under senior picture was participated in the space program, took up space. <laughs> That's not what we're here for. We're not here just to take up space. We're here to minister. We're here to tell people about Jesus. We're here to lift one another up, exhort one another, encourage one another, build each other up. And listen, if all we're doing is existing, our Christian life isn't going to be anything like what it ought and could be. And Paul told Timothy in 4, 1 to 5 of his second letter, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ. How's that for an introduction to a statement? Who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom? Preach the word. Be ready. In season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. That time is here. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth, and they will be turned aside to messages about having your best life now. But you be watchful in all things, Endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your what? That's why we're still here. That is the only reason we're still here, is to fulfill our ministry. And fulfilling our ministries causes afflictions. And there are afflictions associated with fulfilling what God has for us. But that's nothing new, and it should not, and we can't allow it to throw us off course. Jesus said, occupy till I come. That, mean, that word means do business. What's the business of the church? Ministering to the saints and preaching the gospel to the ain'ts, if I can borrow from J. Vernon McGee. And we are to do that right up to the blast of the trumpet that calls us home. And listen, some will and some won't because the choice is ours. But I submit to you this morning, one choice is far better than the other. And we would do well to spend our time ministering to other people and preaching to the lost. Amen? Even when it's out of season. Look at 25 and 26. And Paul says then, and being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all your, pro uh, continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith, that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. I stumbled on verse 25 in both services now. We'll see if I can hit the trifecta and blow it in third service too, but... <laughs> the, the you all thing threw me off there. Now, Paul says to the beloved Philippians, I am confident that I'm going to see you again and be found innocent and be released. Since that's what's more needful. That's what you need. You need me to be released so I can come back and minister to you. 
And what we're seeing here is the humanity of Paul and his love for others. Yes, it was far better to go and be with the Lord, and that was going to be Paul's future, unbeknownst to him. But ministering to them, rejoicing with them, seemed to be winning the day in his thinking, so to speak. And it was his preference of outcomes of his trial before Caesar Nero. Now, Paul himself was uh, being handed a not guilty verdict based on the need of the Philippian church is why he was confident that things were going to go that way. Now, our next verses in chapter 1 are going to reveal that there was persecution in the church at Philippi. And it would be better if Paul was there to help them through it. Then we'll find in chapter 2 that division was brewing in the church at Philippi. And it would be better for Paul to be there and straighten things out. Then in chapters 3 and 4, false teachings were beginning to mount up in the church and the Judaizers have arrived trying to tell Christians they have to be Jews in order to become Christians. And it would be better for Paul to be there, especially being a former Pharisee, to help handle this group who seemed to trail him wherever he went. And for those reasons, Paul was convinced he would see them again. But he wouldn't. On July 19, 64 AD, Rome was set on fire by the madman Caesar Nero. He blamed the Christians. And the historian, church historian Eusebius records that Paul was beheaded shortly after that fire that had burned uh, for nine days was extinguished. It was around that same time that Peter was crucified. Church tradition says Peter said, I'm not worthy to be crucified like Jesus. Crucify me upside down. And Peter was indeed crucified in that manner. So why was Paul beheaded and Peter crucified upside down? Because a Roman citizen could not be crucified. That was Roman law. And Paul was a Roman citizen. Peter was not. Thus the difference in the two manners of execution for these two great apostles of Christ. And in Galatians 2.20, Paul would write, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. me. And this personalized aspect of the cross is one I believe we need to incorporate in our thinking more frequently as it parallels what Jesus said about us in Matthew 10 of being of greater value to the Lord than many sparrows. And this is through the, the lens through which Paul is viewing his circumstances. The Philippians, he believed, were of such great value to the Lord that the Lord would certainly grant him a not guilty verdict and send him back to them because they were going to need his help. But the Lord didn't do that. Paul was executed. So listen, here's the point we can draw from that. You ready? Nothing, say nothing. Nothing and no one in life is more important than the Lord. Nothing. And no one in life is more important than the Lord. Now, I don't think Paul thought he was by any stretch of the imagination. We know better than that. We know that through his testimony and the multiple things uh, we have read about Paul. But the, the fact is, this makes a point. And the Philippians certainly would have wanted to see Paul, but they needed the Lord more than they needed Paul. I'm sorry. They needed the Lord more than they needed Paul. Now, in 1 John 1, 1 to 4, John the Beloved says this, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life, speaking of Jesus, the life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you 
that eternal life was with the Father and was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard we declare to you, that you also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you, that your joy may be what? Full. Listen, to depart and be with the Lord is far better. Because there is nothing and no one that is more important than the Lord in both life and in death. But here's the thing. Not everyone who believes that acts like it's true. We have to choose to act like it. And the choice is ours. The choice is yours. The choice is mine. And this is what Joshua pointed out in his farewell address to Israel in the famed passage of Joshua 24, 15. He said, listen, if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods which your father served that were on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me, there's another Pauline type statement. For to me, to live as Christ, to die is gain. Joshua says, as for me, you do what you want. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I'm with Joshua. I'm with Joshua. And while much of the church today chooses to serve the God of this world and name and, declaim, name and claim, declare and decree wealth and health into their lives, which, by the way, you cannot do, and the Bible doesn't teach any such thing. I'm still waiting. And while much of the world calls us conspiracy theory nuts who believe in an invisible being who spoke all things into existence and deny the clearly unscientific theory of evolution, I always find it interesting that we get insulted as being unscientific, and yet the basic premise of what they believe is that if you leave a rock alone long enough, it'll become a potato. (laughs) That's basically what evolution is. Listen, inorganic matter is never ever going to become organic, ever. It's absolutely impossible. Unless, of course, there's a supernatural being who can say, let there be light, and there is light. Who can turn, our God can turn a rock into a potato. Now, I've actually seen reverse evolution. I've seen some potatoes turned into rocks being left in the microwave too long, but I've never seen it go the other direction. Amen? And yet we're the ones that are unscientific. We're the ones that are constantly being accused of being anti-intelligence or education or any of those things. And listen, we're being censored today. Christians are being ostracized by their own family members. And we've talked about some of the things, some of the, the horrid things that have gone on in our country because of people's political affiliation or more recently and more dramatically, their position on the bug or the jab. It's dividing families. And you know how careful I am with my choice of words all the time. (laughs) That's just stupid. That's just stupid. Stupidity has taken over in much of our country. We're better than that. We're smarter than that, right? I I thought I'd get a much bigger response to that. We're smarter than that, right? Yeah, we are. Listen, Christians aren't the stupid people of the world who need such a thing. Christians are people who weigh the evidence and follow facts. 
And the facts are there's only one who defeated the grave, and his name is Jesus. There's only one amongst all the religious leaders of the world who died, rose again, and is alive forevermore. There's only one tomb that's empty and been vacated by the occupant, and that is the tomb of Jesus Christ. He is seated at the right hand of majesty on high, living daily as intercession for you and I, and he's coming to get us pretty soon. Until then, as for me and my house, we're going to serve him. We're going to serve him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, with every ounce of our being, because he alone is the most important thing in life and certainly death. And we're going to honor him in all we do. The choice is yours. Make the same one. Amen? Father, we are grateful for your word this morning. We thank you uh, for this record that Paul uh, penned. We thank you for seeing a little glimpse into his humanity. He was confident. He thought, yeah, it's going to be not guilty. Uh, The Philippians need me, so that's what's going to happen. Lord, we see that you allowed him to go home, and the Philippians were still ministered to uh, by you and your Holy Spirit and those you raised up to guide and direct them, Lord, as you do. Uh, throughout the ages. The church is still here today. And as though it's being persecuted in, uh, in different ways around the world, but coming here to America as well, your church will not be prevailed against. And you will come get us uh, when the time has come. And when we're being uh, overrun and even the message of truth is being rejected, as you wrote to Paul, um, when they would not receive the love of the truth, they were handed over to a strong delusion that they will believe the lie of the Antichrist. And Lord, it sure seems like we're there now. So we thank you, God, that you're still saving souls today. And we thank you that you're still using Christians to preach truth. So, Lord, I pray, as Paul did, that there would be a measure, a supply, a, a, a contribution of your Holy Spirit in our lives that would embolden us uh, to do what we may not naturally do God or naturally even long to do but know that we need to do God would you shake this place and all who are here today that we would speak the word of God with boldness as happened in Acts 4:31. Lord would you overcome us and overtake us and overwhelm us and empower us and strengthen us God to finish this race well and to fight the good fight of faith and not roll over and not simply exist and not simply take up space but rather to be about your business until you come. And we thank you and praise you that you are coming and that you are going to receive us unto yourself, that where you are, we may be also. We thank you for these exceedingly great and precious promises. And Lord, I pray that in these last days that we would stand strong, having done all to stand, fully armored up, not complacent, not apathetic, fully engaged in the battle and rescuing souls drawn towards death. We need a contribution of your spirit, Lord, in order for us to do and fulfill those things. So we ask for it, we pray for it, knowing, Lord, as uh, your son, our Savior, illustrated, nobody who asks for the spirit is going to be given a stone or a serpent or anything else instead. So we ask you for an outpouring of your spirit to embolden your church. And Lord, I pray for this church. This is the church you've blessed me to be a part of. So I pray for this church, that you would empower this church uh, to be proclaimers of truth. And that, Lord, um, city of Costa Mesa and 
Central and South Orange County will be talking about the people who go here because of their witness for you. And Lord, I thank you for this opportunity today to look at these words of Paul as he faced death so we can learn how to face persecution. We pray these things now in Jesus' name. And all God's people in agreement said,